0: Several entire families were slaughtered during the Hamas onslaught on southern Israel on October 7th that left 1,200 dead. They were killed by terrorists together. So why shouldn't a father, mother, and their children be buried together? When the father is not Jewish, the question becomes more complicated, at least in the Jewish state.
1: In today's modern state of Israel, we need a new toolkit in many ways. It doesn't have to deny the halachic process, it doesn't have to ignore it, it doesn't have to say it's irrelevant, it just has to find those moments in Jewish legal history that enable, enable us to live together with our communities, That's Rabbi Seth Farber, the head of
0: ITIM, an organization that helps Israelis navigate the country's religious bureaucracy. In its mission statement, the NGO says it is committed to increasing participation in Jewish life by making Israel's religious establishment respectful and responsive to the diverse Jewish needs of the Jewish people. During this current war with Hamas, Itim found itself helping on the issue of burials for those who are not considered halachically Jewish, as well as the idea of preemptively preventing anchored women, or agunot, with the wives of soldiers who may be taken captive. So this week, I, Amanda Borshel Dan, hear from Rabbi Seth Farber, What Matters Now.
2: Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk law firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed.
0: Seth, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Amanda.
0: Of course, the hostage deal is on everyone's minds, and Judaism throughout the history has had to deal with this issue several times. So to begin our conversation, I just would like to hear some of the traditional sources and what they have to say about the hostages.
1: Okay, so the first thing to note as a preliminary statement is that uh, today we have a sovereign state and we're blessed with uh, military, a strong military, and a government, and because of that, when the sources were you know written in the sources I'll discuss in for you know a very you know high level, uh, they didn't have that kind of situation. So it's very, very hard to apply any particular uh, decision to this uh, to this particular circumstance. That being said, the Talmud already in Masachet Kitin talks about that one is not allowed to uh, spend more than the value of an individual in order to uh, redeem that individual from captivity. The Talmud gives two reasons why that either because it uh, would uh, deprive the general public of funds needed for other other critical areas, or perhaps because this is a second opinion of the Talmud, and it's one that really carries throughout the generations and is really the normative opinion because it would incentivize taking more captives. That's certainly something we all feel. Um, That decision of how one evaluates the value of someone and the issue of trading, usually they were talking there about money. There's a famous story. In 1193, a famous rabbi, one of the last of the Tosafists, the commentaries on the initial commentaries on the Talmud, Mahram of Rottenberg, was taken captive. Very possibly, his prize student was run out of town. The Rush was run out of Germany because of that and ended up in Spain because they wanted him to pay more money than the Mahram wanted. And the maharam ultimately passed away in captivity and was only redeemed. His body was redeemed uh, in 1307. So there are sources that talk about it. Uh, Maimonides talks about it, the Shulchan Aruch talks about it. And of course, in the modern period, uh, a number of prominent uh, halachic decisors post-scheme have weighed in on the issue. Um, But again, my particular feeling is that uh, the people who really need to make this decision are the ones who are making the decision in the interests of uh, the greater military uh, needs of our community, particularly in a time of war. Uh, There are some commentaries that talk about the fact that the whole discussion of the Talmud is not when people's lives are in danger. And I think it's very clear that today people's lives are in danger when they're taken in captivity.
0: So let's talk about that, the issue of pikuach nefesh, which seems to be able to negate almost every other halacha.
1: It does. And it certainly negates, according to the normative psaac, the issue of uh, only paying for people, uh, the, their value, however one would determine that. That being said, the issue is so wrenching. It's so, it's, it's, heart wrenching in so many, so many ways. We hear the stories every single day of people um, we know, families, even in our community who have relatives who have been taken captive, and it's it, it's just it, it's just so painful to see and to hear people talk about the fact that they were relieved when they found out their relatives were murdered because the alternative was worse. Uh, it's just it's horrifying and it's it's hard to it's surreal. It's 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 unimaginable what we're living through. And the the truth is we're living through one of the, you know, a tragic moment in Jewish history as someone, you know, not only a rabbi, but a PhD in Jewish history, someone who studied this stuff. I feel like we're back in the medieval period and we're, we're living through, a, you know, something that I read about, you know, that happened in the Crusades or something that happened in a, you know, in the Holocaust or something like that. You know, you think about the Kielch Program in 1946, you know, where, you know, tens of people were killed. And here we have 1200 people plus killed and people being killed more every day. And then Hundreds of people being taken hostage. It's just heart wrenching.
0: So, the halakha on the hostage issue is somewhat hypothetical because there was no Jewish data at that time. But the Jewish law on burial is very, very practical, unfortunately, all too practical in the wake of the Hamas massacre on October 7th and one of the issues that has been in the news of course is how do you bury a family when not all of its members are Jewish and we've had a couple cases of that can you first of all
1: explain the cases right sure so my organization team has had to handle a number of these cases already and we've actually we actually reached out to the chief rabbi just uh, two or three days after the war started and said there's gonna be issues that come up here. Israel is blessed uh, at this moment to be a place of the kibbutz Gali a place where the incoming of the exiles and uh, almost 550,000 people came on Aliyah, emigrated to Israel under the law of return as Jews, but don't qualify as uh, Jews according to the halachic system or certainly can't prove it. And because of that, their status is in question. Um, Most of these people get full citizenship the 550,000 I'm talking about get full citizenship, as you know, Amanda, I've been arguing for more than a decade that we need to come up with a conversion process. I'm an Orthodox rabbi, and I believe there's a halachically viable conversion process that would enable these 500,000 people with Jewish ancestry to fully join the halachic community as well. But today they haven't yet for all sorts of reasons. And uh, they're, other than the, their Jewishness, they're basically full citizens. They struggle to get married. But other than that, they're full citizens. They serve in the army and they were at the rape festival and they uh, have been killed. Unfortunately, some of them have been killed in combat on the front lines even. And uh, then the issue basically uh, comes in front of the rabbinate, how to bury these people. So as I said, I think there's a halachic way to do it. More than a decade ago, my organization team was involved in trying to convince the chief rabbinate that within the military, there should be a solution that doesn't Force people of questionable Jewish status to be buried, quote, outside the fence. And in fact, after a long lobbying effort, which I thought until a few weeks ago was behind us, um, there was a, a modus operandi created in military cemeteries where it meets all the strictest halachic uh, guidelines and still allows soldiers to be buried just as they served, katef al katef, shoulder to shoulder with their, uh, you know, with their colleagues, with their compatriots. Uh, with this, within the civil uh, burial issue, that issue had been uh, resolved to some extent in the law by enabling civil burial, but there's still many families that want to be buried. And all of a sudden you have a situation also not unprecedented in Jewish history. The Mishnah already talks about if someone is found in a field, killed with Jews, and how do we bury them? And a 16th century commentary of the Bach, Rabbi Joel circus from Krakow, he discusses the fact that that's normative psaq, that it was someone who was killed al Kiddush Hashem, you know, sanctifying God's name. If someone was killed as a Jew, even if they're not a Achli Jewish, you can bury them in the cemetery. Now, that wasn't necessarily accepted as the normative psaq. Rav Gorin had a number of Chuvot, the chief rabbi of Israel in the, in the early 70s, had a number of Chuvot of responsa where he discussed this issue. And he came up with one modus operandi. And if one reads his, his responsa very carefully, one sees that there is room. To find a way for people, even of questionable Jewish status, even if people who are not Jews but were killed al kiddush Hashem with Jews, to be buried in the cemetery, they can do it in uh, different ways. For example, uh, digging a, a, a plot a little deeper if there's if that's an issue, so that there is a, so to speak appropriate distance or having equal distance between all the plots. Those are ways that are being already implemented in the military. And we cautioned the chief rabbinate already. I have letters back and forth between me and the chief rabbis on the 12th of October, just five days after the war. We anticipated this was going to happen. Unfortunately, and I think really uh, it created a huge chilu it created a huge desecration of God's name. There were a number of rabbinates that decided to act on their own independently, including the one in Beitron. There was a woman there who was killed and a longstanding member of the community, her Jewishness was of questionable status, meaning she tried to convert, actually, at some point. And the local rabbi said, well, she didn't finish the conversion process, so she must not be interested in being Jewish. Again, you know I have a lot to say about the conversion process in Israel, but not everybody who doesn't finish the conversion process in Israel, that doesn't mean they don't want to be fully Jewish. Uh, Again, she comes from Jewish ancestry, and they basically buried her on the other side of the fence. They buried her outside the cemetery, and that is something that uh, we found very objectionable. And uh, there were a number of responses written, a number of uh, activists and members of Knesset who got involved. We were at a hearing uh, just a week ago in the Knesset about this issue. Um, and because of the public pressure, essentially, I'm, I'm pleased to report that the the cemetery in Beit Shan, they didn't rebury the person, but they did take down the fence or lower the fence to a way that it, it again, the damage was done. The family felt, like I said, uh, tragedy upon tragedy. The family felt incre- incredibly disenfranchised following the incredible, uh, the heart-wrenching pain they must have felt when their daughter was killed. But uh, I think that the public pressure made a difference in this case, again, against my better judgment, because I really would have preferred that the chief rabbis had responded when I wrote the letter way before this became a public issue and they'd come up with a solution. But I think the public pressure will hopefully prevent this from going on. I do want to say one more thing that uh, if you want to continue with the burial issue, we can. But uh, there's other issues also that have come up with our interactions and our particular expertise Uh, with the religious establishment where the religious establishment wasn't being sensitive enough to the needs, the religious needs, the Jewish needs of the population during this very, very, very difficult time. And we've gotten involved in in those areas as well.
0: We will definitely get to that. I just want to understand, because I'm not a halachic expert, what is the issue here with burying Jews and non-Jews together?
1: That's an excellent, excellent question. There is certainly nothing in the Bible that discusses having separate Jewish cemeteries. It's clear that throughout Europe in the medieval period, there were cemeteries that were together and cemeteries that were separate. But at some point along the way in Jewish history, and again, it began much earlier in the medieval period, uh, Jews had their own plots. They had their own plots, and it was considered uh, a moment... uh, Death is considered uh, antithetical to the the central thrust of Jewish life, which is to sanctify life. And at the same time, there was this sense that... um, We want to sanctify people even in their death, and thus we want them to be among their community, etc. So such a tradition did develop. I'm not pretending it didn't develop. Um, And um, traditions were recorded of having separate Jewish cemeteries, and that was the way in modern Europe, that was pretty much the way things were, unless someone really wanted to leave the Jewish community. Uh, That being said, in today's modern state of Israel, we need a new toolkit in many ways. It doesn't have to deny in my humble opinion, doesn't have to deny the halachic process. It doesn't have to ignore it. It doesn't have to say it's irrelevant. It just has to find those moments in halachic history, in Jewish legal history, that enable enable us to live together with our communities. Again, over the long term, I think the longer term narrative is to ensure that uh, anybody who wants to can be fully part of the Jewish community, can get married here, can convert here if they want, etc., but uh, during war, the issue comes up, particularly when it comes to to burial, and that's something we want to make sure that everybody who wants to be buried in a Jewish ceremony in the cemetery with the people they died with, Al Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, that's something that should should be able to be ha- happening. This week, we've turned to the Attorney General to get involved so that it doesn't happen again. Um, again, this is kind of like we're using at our my organization team we're, we're we're using the tools that we've used in other areas. For this particularly sensitive area, we're trying to uh, make be as sensitive as possible, but particularly make sure that the families are getting the responses they need to, especially at the time of deep tragedy.
0: Okay, so just to be clear, it sounds like it's not even a halakha, but it's a tradition. It's at that level.
1: There is a again the 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 line between those two things is is, is somewhat vague. Sometimes it is a halakhic issue. I don't want to pretend it's not a halakhic issue, but it's a halakhic issue with halakhic solutions. And there's very, very clear halachic solutions. And like I said, in the military, they implement those solutions already. It's just that the civil burial authorities, there's 600 burial societies in Israel, about 40 or 50 big ones uh, that are run out of religious councils, they don't have the nuances, they don't have the toolkit to be able to do this. And someone needs to tell them, this is what needs to be done. You simply can't work for the state of Israel and disenfranchise citizens of the state of Israel who died sanctifying God's name, who died as Jews. You simply can't keep them outside the fence.
2: The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Okay, let's turn to another issue that you and I have discussed over the years, and that is, of course, the anchored women, the agunot. And so many soldiers, unfortunately, are unable to come back home, either alive or in a coherent state. That also happens, of course. And there is a solution for this, a preemptive solution, correct?
1: Right. So uh, there are some discussions... uh that have been going on. We also reached out to a number of prominent rabbis right at the beginning of the war, in the first week of the war, to see if they'd move this together, move this forward. Uh, there is a tradition. Again, we don't want women, particularly if men are going out to fight and they're married. We don't want women uh, having their husbands taken captive or not being able to identify their remains. It's very, very hard to talk to to talk about this kind of like in this kind of forum, but it's because it's so painful in every case. It's so really, again, I use that word a lot, heart-wrenching, but that's just the way I feel a lot of the time it's, a, it's so you feel so helpless against what, what we're dealing with here and the evil we're dealing with here in Hamas. Um, so over the course of time, and this is already a Talmudic solution that was kind of pinned on King David, that David's army would, uh, the men would issue divorce documents to their wives, and thus, uh, preempt any any kind of uh, you know if something were to happen to them in war, then there wouldn't they wouldn't be left uh, you know as aguna basically you know it's left without uh, knowing what their status was are they married or they're not are their husbands alive or not this is something that's happened before we dealt with it in America in nine eleven where people disappeared and we weren't able to find them in this case when people go out to war so it's a very very sensitive situation I'll explain why on one hand uh, we want to make sure that. Women are protected, especially those who seek such a solution. On the other hand, we spent a lot of time talking to senior people in the army about what it does to morale when you say to a soldier, a male soldier going on. Of course, we have more and more female soldiers going out now as well. And that's something to, to really be, be proud of, especially especially the role women soldiers played at the beginning of the war. Uh, it's really remarkable and traumatic even. And I think uh, a watershed moment for women serving in the military here. But leaving that aside for a moment, uh, what does it do the morale when you say to every uh, soldier going out, "Hey, would you like to give a gift to your wife?" You know now because you might not come back. You know that might be. Morale. I'm trying to oversimplify, but it's it it does create a complexity uh, of the situation. The truth is, what I wanted to point out before is that the official policy of the army is this is supposed to happen, and when it's official policy, it becomes um, it becomes a little more uh, innocuous, pain, painless. It's a little more painless. Uh, uh, I don't know if you can be a little more painless, but it's it's, it's not as painful. If you if it's part of the army policy. That being said, it isn't being implemented. Not not only across the board. It isn't being implemented at all. It's only being implemented on kind of a ad hoc basis for rabbis who know what it is. Uh, a couple of families turned to me individually or E-Team and asked me if I would affect this kind of thing. Um I I, t- I asked them to think about it. And I gave them the the you know the two sides of the coin, and both of them decided just to not not to do it. But it is a very, very painful moment. Also, in in seventy-three we had scholars, rabbis, chief rabbis, who had broad shoulders to be able to solve these problems post facto. Uh, today, I'm afraid we do have those rabbis in play, but they're not the chief rabbis. And we're going to have to find uh, a solution. I've already begun some discussions with some of my colleagues about who, if, if these questions do come up, right now it's, too, too, it's still too preliminary to, to figure out how much they're going to come up. But um, there are rabbis who have the broad shoulders to be able to solve these problems, and I believe they will.
0: Okay, let me just try and figure it out for myself what you're saying here. On the one hand, you're saying that there are rabbis who could potentially post-mortem figure out a solution for these women who would be anchored to these men.
1: Right, if it's post-mortem, it's less of an issue if we don't know, if we don't know the status of
0: Okay, People those are uh, captive or...
1: Right, if they're in captivity, you know, forever or if uh, we can't identify them. There's a number of people, I don't know how much people, you know, the listenership knows that there's people, you know, we've only been able to identify something like close to 900 bodies and we know there's many more that were killed, so...
0: Okay, so that's one issue. But the other issue, if I'm understanding you properly, is soldiers... Would give this kind of writ of divorce that is uh, retroactively uh, right. effective.
1: It, the mecha- there's different mechanisms in which it works, but essentially, imagine if you give a get that says if you come back from war, then the get isn't effective. But if you don't come back, then it takes place from now. Um, I'm oversimplifying, but that's the that's the simple mechanism. So then, essentially, should they not come back from war, it turns out they were divorced, or you don't come back by a certain date or something like that. That's one mechanism.
0: But they're not divorced in the meantime, obviously. Right.
1: That's, that's one of the challenges. Can you give a, a divorce when you're still living together? That's, that's one of the halachic challenges. But the, again, there's certain nuances and loopholes that you can use to basically write such a thing. And there is, there is a, uh, a formula, there is a text of such a get. Again, I'm oversimplifying it just because the technical details would uh, you know, be too complex for this kind of form. But uh, there is such a, a form that exists. Like I say, on the, on the books, the army is supposed to be implementing it, but it's very, very, very hard to implement.
0: And just as one can, for example, download a form to sell your chametz before Passover, there is this kind of text already ready?
1: So you would need, uh, uh, again, it's debatable how much you need a rabbinical court for for a get, but you would need certainly uh, three rabbis to be able to, uh, or two rabbis and a shaliach a messenger, again, the complexities of it are interesting and maybe we can, we can talk about it more, but it's, I think it's, it's essentially you're appointing someone as a messenger to give the get in, if you're absent and then that's one of the mechanisms and then they can give the get from, and you say, I'm doing it from now, but the get isn't actually given, or maybe the get is given, there's different ways to do it, but so you would certainly need other players involved. You can't just do it yourself.
0: So how do you see this playing out?
1: Look, for right now, I don't see this happening right now. I think it will generate a whole, uh, if, there, if there are cases, then I think it will generate another round of discourse about this. There are certainly some people who will be more vocal. Again, I think today, unlike the last time this came up in a significant way, which was, uh, again, it came up in 73, and then it came up again in, in the first Lebanon war, when we realized that there are people who just don't come back. So, without naming names, but there are people who don't come back who are married, and uh, there was a there was a, a round of discourse, halachic discourse about it, and that changed things. But again, it took you know, thank God, maybe you know, hopefully, it won't come up again, but because uh, we strive for peace and we want peace, but uh, I, I feel like uh, we'll have to see where that goes. In other words, there's always creative solutions that are put on the table, and each time the the formulation and the the, the the direction in which it goes kind of takes on new new meaning. So it could be there'll be a new form and it could be there'll be someone who comes up with a new a new creative solution in which to do this that will create greater consensus and actually greater will to be able to do it. In the end, I think it has to happen through the army. Whereas the army rabbinate, which has become weakened over the years, Right, they've become subservient to the chief rabbinate and the chief rabbinate itself isn't as strong as it once was in terms of its uh, broad shoulders and its sensitivity to the military issues. I think... Uh, if that were to change a little, that might, you know, create some some new will to make it happen.
0: And just to take it to its conclusion, this is important for people, for women, who would want to get married again or who are willing to even live in some kind of partnership with somebody else and have children because this would affect the status of their children.
1: Right. In other words, uh, a standard aguna, a standard woman who's anchored or chained is a woman whose husband, uh, you know, disappears and we're familiar with it more in today's society, the things we deal with, you know, in in our day-to-day or, you know, women who the husband refuses to give a get or the woman refuses to accept a get. That's called a revit, a refuser. But in the classic case, it's the husband just disappears, either in you know, in war or not in war. When it comes to war, there's a, there's a way to do it, right? The classic case in the Talmud is the guy goes on a business trip on a boat and just, dis- you know, the boat sinks. And then what happens? you know, the woman is just uh, anchored forever because she doesn't know if the husband's alive somewhere. And of course, in the Holocaust, we had you know, multiple examples of this. Uh, I'm sure the listenership is, is aware of people, you know, they the woman got remarried and then her first husband showed up years later and then and then what do you do? You know, and that happens every once in a while and then, there's, like I said, there's halachic solutions to this. Uh, it's in the interest of everybody to try to, to find solutions to this and uh, I hope we don't get to there within this in this particular war but uh, if there are cases, there are, you know, rabbinical court judges who are sensitive to the area and I think will step forward and take the responsibility like Rafa Vadi Yosef did, you know, at the time in, in 73, or like some of the bigger post scheme did in the, you know, after 9-11 in America.
0: Now, the third theme that you floated that we discussed, I don't even understand why this is an issue at all. And it's about uh, going to the mikveh, to the ritual bath during the day.
1: Right, so this is a really fascinating issue. First of all, it's going to surprise your listenership to know that more than half a million women use the mikveh in Israel. Mm-hmm. This is not like a shtetl anymore. You have a tremendous, tremendous amount of women who are visiting the mikveh on a regular basis, uh, based on the you know, family purity traditions of uh, of orthodox law. Not all of them are orthodox. Many of them are what we call traditional, mesorti here in Israel. And, um, but this is an area of Jewish life that they've adopted, upon you know, for themselves. Now, mikvahs in traditional society were used at night. It was a private act and it was only done at night, et cetera. And Etim has gotten involved in the mikvah issue on a number of areas, allowing m- women to use the mikvah without an attendant there and having um, more expanded hours and stuff like that. What happened here was we started getting in our call center two types of calls. And then it turned out it was a much bigger issue than we thought. One was from women who were supposed to go to the mikvah, but they have little kids at home, and their husbands were on miluim. Their husbands were on reserve duty. And they said, I can't leave my kids at home at night without being afraid that the siren's going to go off and no one's going to be there with them. You know, and I can't get a babysitter, especially at the beginning of the war. The second one was women who just said, we need to know where there's a shelter in the mikvah. What if something, if a siren goes off? And we refuse to go to the mikvah and we'll be better off in daytime than at nighttime for that. The issue here is actually a very interesting legal issue because you're not asking the, the rabbin and people who control the mikvahs. The mikvahs are a public service here. It's paid for by tax dollars or shekels as the case may be. So imagine a situation where you're basically saying, listen, can you open up at hours that are not your hours, and not your regular hours? Right? We all have an interest here in helping these women. And again, it wasn't half a million women that called us, but, but there were tens, hundreds even that called and said, what are we supposed to do? And it turned out that in every city had its own rules. So what we tried to do was petition, lobby the rabbinate, to basically create in every major city one mikvah that would be open and during the day. And to create a mechanism where women could find that mikvah very easily, if they wanted to, and, and use the mikvah during the day. How exactly it works from a technical perspective, etc., that's less of interest. But assuming that there's a way to do it during the day, and there is a way to do it during the day, then how do we get the mikvahs open during the day to make sure that happens? So at the beginning, the rabbinate said, it's not a problem. Then we demonstrated to them that we had hundreds of calls. And they said, okay, we recognize the problem, but we can't help you because we don't want to open the mikvahs during the day because the tradition is you're supposed to do it at night. And we said, this is a, you know, look what's going on here. And again, this is the, the gap that I, ex- I expressed before about the burial issue or the, or the, the divorce issue. Often the, the clerks or the rabbis who work in the institutional rabbinate, they don't have a window into the, the sensitivities that are going on in the, on the street. You know, people who are serving in the army, many of them don't serve in the army. They're not part of that dimension of Israeli society. Again, for better, or for worse, that's debatable. I have my strong feelings about it. In other words, I wish they were more, I don't hesitate to say them all the time. I wish they were more involved, but they don't have that sensitivity. So when we got involved, our job is to basically say, listen, there's a whole population out here that is not going to use the mikvah. So it's in, according to your standards, it's in your interest to figure out a solution for them. So I'll just give you one example there was a, you know in Jerusalem the solution they came up with was and this I was very excited about actually because it was new new territory instead of saying okay if there's a problem call such and such rabbi which is what I've seen you know 50 times in the last 15 years or 20 years of doing this they actually appointed a woman I was so excited they appointed a woman to handle all the calls of of women who had this problem they told us You're, you feel free to advertise this woman's phone number. She will be our filter and open mikvahs as need be. So it wasn't perfect. It wasn't like they said, okay, we're gonna open this mikvah no matter what, but they had an address. People in Jerusalem, which is a huge population of mikvah users, had a place to go. And in fact, the first day, you know, we followed up on the calls that we got to make sure that it it was working. And in fact, it worked. It worked. And still today, six weeks into the war, and again, I, I can't believe I'm saying those words, six weeks into the war, but six weeks into the war, there's still an address in Jerusalem. And it's happened just about in every city on our website. We published a list of all the mikvahs. We basically did a, we took some of our staff and we called all the, all the municipalities, all the religious councils, and we basically made a list of all the places and who, how they're solving this problem. Are they open during the day? Are they not open during the day? Uh, if they aren't open in the day, who can you call to get it open during the day? If, you, if there isn't one in your city, where can you go this close by? In other words, we put up all that information and hopefully helped a lot, a lot of women you know, uh, traverse this difficult time for them. Uh, Hopefully, again, in other words, this won't be an issue. Hopefully, the number of missiles will go down. Hopefully, the fear will go down. Hopefully, the, you know, for those whose husbands went away. So, and again, it's not only husbands that are going away. I want to make it very clear. There's a lot of women serving also, and it's incredible, and and we're blessed to have it, and it's protecting our country. In this particular issue of the mikvah, so it's primarily the husbands who are away and the the women who need to use the mikvah, and we've been very gratified to be able to help them.
0: Really interesting. Thank you, Seth, so much for bringing all of this to me today.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: I live next to a kindergarten, and as I prefer to work from home, my days are infused with sounds of childhood play, their blessings at mealtimes, their singing of the national anthem, and their prayers for the sick since October 7th, as I edit articles about the dead, the missing, the hostages, and their families, this cognitive dissonance helps keep me grounded. Now, as all of us here in Israel await the hopeful release of some 50 hostages, mostly children, I hear the kindergarten next door and hope that soon some of those captured will also, in their own communities, add to this chaotic noise of life. Special thanks to Charlie Summers for his help with the What Matters Now transcripts. What Matters Now is produced and edited by the Pod Waves. If you have comments about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next time, Shalom.